0: Hello, I'm Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast. Weekly music news for the new music business.
1: From Spotify, three things to know about Spotify's featured curator's pilot. From Billboard
0: magazine, the changing world of record label marketing.
1: From Rolling Stone, inside the lavish top secret world of private gigs. Yes.
0: And another from Billboard, Record Label Market Share Q1 2022, Interscope leads, Indies gain, Disney surges into top 10. All right, we're looking at numbers today, Jay. Welcome everyone. This is episode 87 of the Your Morning Coffee podcast. Sit back and relax, because here we go.
2: Stand by for transmission.
0: This is London Court.
2: Wake up! Your morning coffee is on the air, on the air, on the air, on the air, on the for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart.
0: And good morning, Jay. It is so nice to see you. Again, we have
1: had a complete other show before we just hit record. (laughs) Getting we could talk up. all day. Uh, yes. Well, we often do. Yeah, for about the last 40 minutes, um, Mike and I have been talking about <laughs> really up. interesting characters we've worked with in the, uh, in the years at, in, at Universal and elsewhere. But so much great stuff to talk about this week. It was really an embarrassment of riches. If you uh, read your morning coffee this week, I had to leave off, you know five pretty decent stories that normally would make the cut mm-hmm. just because there were so many great uh, pieces this week just an embarrassment well and it's interesting how
0: um, you, you more than anyone know that the you kind of watch the cycles of news and how they you know how it's an up and a down and and again we but we we are in a time now in the music business where it is so much less uh, cyclical than it used to be um, but there's still so much to talk about, and of course, but but that's also the the flip side of that is that but there's also just so many new technologies coming out, and and everything is just flipped. It's just yeah. a different music business, which is why we're here talking about it. Yeah. So it is. Uh, by the way, uh, nice of Rick Springfield to uh, to give us that intro. It's
1: always fun to hear his voice. And yeah, and, well, uh, he's he's a client Galessa. and a friend, and um, um, I I still you know I I am proud of the fact that I'm a. Uh, Uh, a Rick fan, and he's got this tour coming up this summer um, where it's John Waite, Men at Work, and Rick Springfield. What a fun night that's going to be.
0: Yeah, you're talking about all those guys got hits in the 80s, certainly, I mean, got bigger in the 80s without a doubt. So John Waite, of course, in The Babies, uh, you and I both love that band a lot. They were on Chrysalis. They were one of those interesting bands, too, that kind of came out, and I want to say that The Babies actually hit start on Chrysalis were late 70s, right? Before, yeah. mm-hmm. yes. So much like kind of Tom Petty and the Cars, the Babies were this kind of funny band in that. They were really pretty conventional rock and roll, but they kind of were kind of new wavy. They kind of were like like those bands. They kind of yeah. got swept in with
1: a, diff- a different crowd than maybe they really were. But, yeah, super um, melodic. But honest, you know, Oh, a lot super melodic. Of, a lot of their hits had these female backup singers that gave them some depth uh, that a lot of pop bands didn't have at the time. And don't forget uh, John Waite, you know, he's had not only the babies and his solo stuff, but he was in bad English and they had a couple of number one hits and uh, yeah, he's had a really amazing career. There's actually a documentary uh, in progress right now that I'm really looking forward to. They have a kind of a splash page set up uh, about it, but his career and his life are super interesting and um, Colin Hay, you know, and men at work, all those great songs. Um, it's gonna oh, be a yes. fun, It'll be a fun night.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And the thing about John Waite, too, is, you know, there's there's a handful of artists. The first one that comes to mind is actually Paul Rogers from Bad Company um, that have this really great voice and they have not lost. Not at a, all. Not a, st- you know, a lot of artists, uh, singers, anyway, you, know, you get to a certain age and you don't have the same range that you had. And so they'll need to lower the key a little bit, perhaps, um, or change arrangements around. But the stuff that I've heard from John Waite, man, he just, he's got the same damn voice he had in 1980. And not for keeping care of himself, necessarily. I think it's just great genetics.
1: Uh, I think that's what it is. You know, you mentioned Paul Rogers. You know, I would would probably put uh, Paul Carrick in that group. There's certain Robin Mm -hmm. Zander. There's certain singers that just, they don't, you know, tune down a half step. It's just in the same key, and they just stand and deliver and still sound amazing. So...
0: Speaking yeah, of sounding amazing, how about my buddy Jay Gilbert? He, of course, is the co-founder <laughs> of music and marketing and strategy company Label Logic, the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter and former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, Fox Home Entertainment, and a,
1: uh, a groovy dude. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And my, uh, my co-host here, Mike Etchard, is longtime host of Sound & Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records, Warner Music, capital EMI, and Universal Music. Yes, all of those.
0: <laughs> oh, my former employers.
1: Let's just uh, thank our, our wonderful sponsors really quickly uh, Music Business Association, which I am a member. The four-day Music Biz uh, 2022 conference, the agenda has just been announced. It's taking place May 9th through 12th at the JW Marriott in Nashville. Um, I will be there. Along with returning favorites like the Metadata Summit, NextGen Now, DSP Workshops, and Brand Summit, just to name a few. You'll find timely new additions for 2022, including conversations on NFTs, gaming, immersive music experience, catalog acquisitions, and much more. Visit musicbiz.org. We
0: are also sponsored by HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. And yes, Bands in Town. Over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the Number one artist service platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their superfans. Managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. So big thanks to Music Business Association, Bands in Town, Hypebot. Boy, we certainly appreciate it. We sure do. Okay, now, for real, let's jump in to the show, Jay. let's start with, uh, from our friends over at Spotify, three things to know about Spotify's featured curators pilot.
1: Yeah, we're going to talk about two things here from Spotify. Definitely that, because that's pretty new, this featured curators uh, pilot that they've launched. But also, we're going to talk about discovery mode, um, because there's that was in the news this week as well. So what we're what we're talking about here is this new thing from Spotify uh, called uh, featured curators it's it's a pilot program um Spotify is testing this new way for listeners to discover music that they love basically with a collection of playlists that are curated by select Spotify users and influencers now if you remember when Spotify first launched there were a lot of user curated uh, playlists kind of up front and right that kind of moved over the years to more of their personalized, some would call it algorithmically curated playlists. But um, it, it got away from a lot of the user curated playlists, at least up front. And now they're kind of moving some of that back. And I think that's really important. And um, I'll, I'll kick it off here. They say it's inspired by and made for fans. The Featured Curators Pilot is a limited time test that promotes popular user and influencer playlists alongside of Spotify playlists. The curators we selected are music lovers with established followings and popular playlists on Spotify. See, that's, that's what's really important is Spotify knows who all the early adopters are. They know right. who has uh, the most listeners and the most engagement with these playlists. And I think that's actually really cool and when you talk about some of the playlists that they have that are you know like release radar and discover weekly and and radio and some of those they're really good at kind of picking things that you'll like based on your listening habits so i like this idea of having influencers and certain users um that have followings and and are good at curating to do this as long as it isn't um, taken advantage of. You know what I mean? Like as long as people aren't being paid to play music and that sort of thing. So that was the number one. And one of the things I really got to hand it to Spotify is that they do. Of course, they
0: have to. We've talked about that a lot as well. They have to innovate. They have to be really be on the front end, front end of a lot of things like this. Um, but they are not afraid to try things and to pilot things. And it may not, it may not stay. You know, that's the the other thing is like I, I've I've certainly we've talked about certain things that in the end didn't really come back. They 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 tried it and it wasn't whatever for whatever reason it didn't do what they were hoping it would do. But that's OK. And in fact, that's important for, for companies like this to keep trying these things, to keep yeah. maybe, you know, seeing what 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 sticks. And yeah. that is really what I what I admire about Spotify is. And yeah. again, they have to be like that because they don't have, you know, they, they're not Apple. They're not Amazon. They're not Google. This is right. the, what they do.
1: This is their and core that's business. all that they do.
0: Yeah and that's yeah, all that they do.
1: And you and I talk about their innovations often. I I don't know of another DSP that's as consistently uh, innovative um as as Spotify. Um the other the second of the three points about this thing is that Spotify transformed music discovery through flagship playlists like Rap Caviar and personalized playlists like Discover Weekly. Now we're experimenting with taking playlist creation and discovery even further. We're always testing unique and different listening experiences and programs for our fans, and we're excited to watch this one unfold. I am too. I think this is uh, is really interesting. And look, I I love listening to other people's curated playlists. You know, whenever a friend um you know has a playlist of you know music that I think I'll like, I like hearing what they choose because it's not always what I would choose, and right. that's a great way to discover music.
0: Oh, without a doubt. And that's, you know, and this gets goes back to when we were growing up. You know, you knew these people. They were on your high school campus. Maybe you, I know you were one of those people. I think I was as well, that got onto stuff early. And they just always seemed to be curious about new music and... We've come to a point in technology where now Spotify knows who you are, if you are that. Um, lots of people aren't that, but a handful of people are. And that's always who we were trying to reach when we were marketing bands and new artists, is trying to get those tastemakers out there to to know about it and to maybe kind of sing the praises to the, to the rest of their group of of. Of fans of friends or whatever it is and so it's so interesting to see how now this is so much easier and the dsps know who these people are because they've got they've got the back end data that that tells them who that is and we never really knew who they were in in our day we thought we knew where they were more or less but you know it was that was always the the challenge of finding those people and so different times jay
1: i'm looking forward to um seeing how this goes and and definitely digging in and playing with it um so that's one innovation that i think people are pretty excited about it's called again it's called featured curators and it's a pilot it's a limited time kind of test that they're going to do but another innovation that spotify uh did that there's mixed um, reactions on and that's discovery mode and you'll remember Uh, discovery mode is really, you don't have to pay upfront uh, advertising. What you do is you give up uh, a percentage of the revenue that you make on a particular track in order for Spotify to get that in front of more people that the platform thinks uh, would really enjoy it. And in theory, I thought it sounded pretty exciting. You know, it's like, Advertising is promotion; it's marketing. But I think some people complain that there's really no transparency in that. And if you're going to do that, that it should say "promoted" uh, song, or there should be some kind of designation that shows that you know, if if you're listening to a playlist that's put together based on your listening habits, that song may not be based on your listening habits. And some people say that that should be designated. Um, So there was a piece in Variety written by Jem Oswad, who does some amazing work over at Variety. And the headline was, Members of Congress Slam Daniel Ek and Spotify Over Troubling Discovery Mode Policy. So there are some some members of Congress that are getting uh, involved with this. So I'll just give you kind of the intro here. It says, Three members of Congress have written to Spotify... uh, uh, Spotify's uh, co-founder and CEO Daniel Eck uh, criticizing him over the company's policy of promoting an artist's music on its discovery mode platform in exchange for a reduced royalty rate. Among other notes, the letter requests that Spotify label such songs as paid content. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, what do you think about that? Is it payola? Is it marketing? Uh, yes. <laughs> to both. <laughs> uh <laughs> You know, it's, it's in the letter kind of
0: states, it says, choosing to accept reduced royalty payments is a serious risk for musicians who would only benefit if Discovery Mode yields more total streams for an artist across their entire catalog, not just the track covered by the program. And if two competing artists both enroll their newest track in the program, any benefit could be canceled out, meaning that the only profit goes to your company's bottom line for artists of diverse backgrounds who often struggle to access capital the premise that they must now pay in order to be found by new consumers on Spotify represents an especially serious problem. Yeah. I don't disagree to be honest. Um I don't know what people will do with that information if they know it, um if it will alter their behavior. Uh I don't I don't think so, but but I think it's especially at a, at a time when we talk a lot about transparency. I think probably it's a good thing that that it should be transparent. Um, yeah you Thoughts? Yeah, I think that that
1: would be my only thought is that there should be some kind of designation there. Um, listen, Spotify' is not going to serve up something you know if you're listening to a country playlist they're not going to drop an EDM track in there. I would imagine it's it's going to be something that these listeners will. Uh, connect with, and I think that's a good thing. They they talked to the uh, the CEO of DistroKid, Philip Kaplan, and he's one of those executives that praised the program. You know, he said that Discovery Mode is a groundbreaking music marketing tool because it doesn't require any upfront budget. Discovery Mode makes it possible for independent artists at every level to reach new fans in a whole new way. And listen, there there is such a challenge today with with streaming. People chase streaming. And we always say a playlist is not a marketing plan. There there has to be more to it. But it's, you know, uh, 83% of the business. So we need more tools to help grow that streaming. And that's why, you know, we read all these stories about fake streams and bots and spin farms and people trying to game the system. Because whenever you have a number, like a stream count, and people are judging you by that, People are going to try to game the system. Well, this to me, I love it. Um, like I said, the only the only thing I would change is to maybe highlight those tracks in a different color, or you know, put some kind of a check mark or star by it, so you know that that was served up uh, because of this discovery mode.
0: There's a line in there that I thought was interesting in the original letter, and it said, We would ask that Spotify publish on a monthly basis the name of every track enrolled in the program and the royalty discount agreed upon. Without this transparency, you are asking artists to make a blind choice, and it represents a classic prisoner's dilemma. A prisoner's dilemma, which is an interesting way of phrasing that, yeah. Because in many ways, artists are prisoners to to what happens at the DSPs. You know, they don't have a lot of control over that, of course. And so, yeah. uh, and then the you know the article says regarding consumers, they too deserve transparency, and I think that's right. So I think if 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 uh, if those things two two things were put into place, it would be better. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think Spotify is going to do? You think they're going to you know respond or or Change things.
1: I, I don't know if they're going to change things, but I, I do think that they will respond, and I, you know, I don't see anything really wrong with this. Um, I wish there were more tools um, to do this, and maybe at some point, it's something you can turn off and on. You know, um, like you yeah. have the choice to go into your Discover Weekly um, and release Radar, and and listen to the things that it's suggesting for you that Spotify is suggesting for you. You don't have to go in there and do that, <clears throat> but, um, you can. And I think discovery mode is a good thing. I think it's fairly straightforward and I love the fact that you don't have to pay money upfront for Agreed. an ad because a lot of these developing artists just don't have large targeted online advertising budgets. Exactly. Exactly.
0: And, and I'm, I, I would agree with that. That in that scenario, that makes a lot of sense. So yeah, the the interesting thing,
1: yeah, I would just end it. You know, my, the last thing I'd like to say about this thing is if you look at, you know, Spotify for artists at their, their website, they, they describe it this way. Discovery mode is a marketing tool that helps your music get heard when audiences are most open to discovery Artists and labels identify songs that are a priority for them, and our system will add that signal to the algorithm that determine personalized listening sessions. But it only works if fans love it, too. That's important. When mm-hmm. a listener isn't engaged with a song, we take that as a sign that it's not resonating and pull back on recommending it to similar listeners. It's all about harmony. That, that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well... We will pay attention to this. It's, yeah, I find it very interesting, too, that, that it, it has risen to the level of, of concern and interest to members of Congress, which I found fascinating.
1: Yeah, I think they think about it. I read this thing about, you know, payola versus playola. Payola, of course, is when you pay someone at a radio station to play your song, and that's not that's not admitted, right? But those are public airwaves. That's a big yeah. difference between what they call playola, which is when you pay for something to be in a playlist, and you don't mm-hmm. tell someone that they, that was paid for. So okay. it's just you know it's apples and chainsaws, um, <laughs> but spoken from the master. Yeah, <laughs> well, and we'll chainsaws. yeah we'll uh, we'll see where this goes. So okay. um, we're going to jump into this this next piece, which is from Billboard, written by Dan Rise. It's the changing world of record label marketing. And I love this. This is actually a series, and you and I have been covering every one of these as they uh, as they come out. And I know they did one on AR, which was really good. And we learned a lot about you know what AR reps are doing now. Uh, radio promotions was one that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one is about the changing world of record company marketing.
0: Well, and I I read this one. When super with with eyes wide open and super interested because, you know, I was a product manager at one point and I often think it's like, My God, that's a hard job now considering Everything you have to be aware of, and how, and you and I have, again have talked about this. It used to, not that not that every marketing plan we did was the same, but you did have a broad template with which to work from, and that broad and limited choices,
1: had, right? You didn't have that's right the millions of of platforms, and I'd love to get your your thoughts on this because what I remember most about the really good product managers, um, they were kind of that liaison between the artist and management and the label to yep. communicate that narrative and that brand and their goals but there's a and they talk about it in this article a lot of what they do is inside the building meaning Absolutely. being a cheerleader because those those labels and distributors those staffers are getting new music thrown at them all the time you have to show them why they need to care
0: Absolutely. You are the air traffic controller for management of the, of the artist, but you're also the cheerleader, the internal cheerleader. And that is super, super important. It took me a minute to learn that. Uh, <laughs> but once you do, you totally get it. It's like, okay, that's right. Because, you know, especially now, now more than ever, I think, you know, I, I'm still looking for those, those stats of, in terms of major labels, how many more releases are happening now than they did, call it 25, 20, 25 years ago. Um But even then, even then there were so many releases and, you know, the people, the radio guys, the, the art, everybody was just barraged with stuff. And it was, yeah, your job to kind of walk down the hall and say, Hey, what's happening? And, and, Remind them that you're working this particular thing and yeah. to, to keep it in mind. And, and so, you'd
1: meet with the people back then that would be handling Walmart and Tower Records and yes. Musicland and Warehouse. And you needed to get that field staff fired up about what was coming Absolutely. out. Absolutely, and, and when they did get fired up and you got everybody aligned, uh, beautiful things happened, right? Right, 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 right. And by the way, as a product manager, one of the, the call that you
0: never wanted to get either from the artist or the manager was, Hey, I'm in Duluth and I'm playing a gig and there's no records in the stores.
1: Ugh, yeah. God, I just, oh God. Oh, I remember those days. Oh wow.
0: man. That would just go, you know, five alarm fire up and yeah. down the company. And you know, those are the things that, that, but again, I think the folks doing it now have so and just immeasurably harder job than yeah. than we ever did, given everything that that we were talking about. So yeah. it's, Absolutely. it's a wonderful article. And uh, so do you want to start or do you want to? Yeah, I'll kick start. it off. With, about, yes.
1: There was, a, I think it's pronounced Lally uh, mm-hmm. Jones um, from 300. She's a um, senior marketing director there. She said that good marketing leaves fingerprints in different places what we would judge as a great marketing campaign is about how much it dominates a certain timeline that's relevant to the artist. But then the really great ones echo past that and ripple to the most unlikely places. And I love kind of going through here and we'll get to it near the end of the article. They, they asked some of these, uh, major label marketing people, About their tactics with uh, marketing, and I just I find all of this so interesting because there was a way that you're describing where it used to be, and then how you know it's it's different now. You know they they said that you know everything's built brick by brick, fan by fan. You know touring, radio, you know. In the past, it was kind of formulaic, like you mentioned, and there were kind of these limited choices as to marketing Mm -hmm. uh, a record. Some records had direct response to television. Some of them had outdoor advertising. Some of them had print. You know, there wasn't uh, a lot of these, like, social platforms and YouTube and, you know, there's just so many ways to reach an audience today that it makes a product manager or a marketing executive, it makes their job super challenging. And there's no rest. Uh, Chris Atlas, who's uh, executive
0: VP of urban music and marketing over at Warner Records, said it almost seems like every year or two there's something new that's changing how we consume and expand our own our, on our audience. He said we just need to stay nimble with the changing needs of consumers based on their hobbies and interests. And boy, you do need to stay nimble. And you yeah. know, listen, we as humans, we like generally speaking we like repetition and especially in the workplace it it's stressful when things are continually changing when there's when the ground is always moving um and that's really what music marketing is like right now you know it's like it's like trying to stand up in an earthquake the whole time it, every yeah. day you go to work there's something new new pressures new things you need to know about new ways of marketing artists new ways yeah. of breaking artists
1: yeah and it also comes back to Something very simple. I was talking to a a marketing executive at a a major label, and he said that there are two reasons why someone's not buying your new album or streaming it or whatever. And it was, one, they've never been exposed to the audience, or the artist, I mean. Mm -hmm. And two, they have been, but they didn't know there was a new uh, album out. And he said those are the two things... That I do is, you know, he's trying to make people aware, whether they have a core base, making sure they know that new music is coming. And then if someone hasn't been exposed, like, how do you grow that audience? How do you expose that music to people who would appreciate it? He calls it finding your tribe. And you'll hear me say that a lot because in marketing, that really resonates when you can connect uh, that artist with a tribe. You know, beautiful things happen, but some there are a lot of complexities here, but it's also kind of simple. You know, they, they talk to Dave Bell, you know, who's a, a marketing uh, expert over at uh, Epic. Um, and, and he's talking about how his his job used to be so physical oriented because, you know, remember, before, you know, Napster and iTunes, it, it was CDs. And he said, mm-hmm. just before NAPS are ushered in the music business into the digital world, he said, I'd be in the hallways with a tape gun, divvying up massive amounts of stickers <laughs> into boxes to go to certain markets for street team reps. You know, But while CDs and stickers may not be the business's go to ways of getting music and messages to the masses these days, the job of a marketer is still about awareness and interest, telling a story about an artist, an album, or a song in a way that can reel a potential listener in.
0: Well, and to your kind of earlier point in terms of breaking it down and make it simple, uh, Peter Caden, who's a VP of Marketing Empire, says the biggest thing in any role in marketing is communication. When you're putting together campaigns and trying to tell a story, you have to be able to communicate it properly. Say I'm putting something in front of an artist that I would like for them to do part of their marketing campaign. I have to communicate it to them in an effective way so they're going to be on board and excited about it. And I also have to execute and communicate that campaign campaign publicly so that everyone is happy with the results communication yeah. baby yeah, that
1: that really is is where it's at right if you want to simplify it that that's and, certainly and you've is. been in that that role you understand how that being a cheerleader communicating to all those different areas you know they talked to sharon tamir uh, who's a senior vp head of marketing for island records and uh, she said that the importance of relationships and understanding the artist is key understanding the artist's vision and really seeing that through and keeping that in the forefront of everything we do. And I think that's super important that artist vision, no one knows the music better than the artist and no one knows kind of the goals and the story, the narrative behind it and where they want that to go as artist and manager. And then they commute, uh, communicate that to these product managers and label marketing people. And if that communication is done well and everybody's on the same page with the same narrative, it gets amplified and it becomes even more powerful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I really found interesting, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, um, in our day, the silos within major music companies. We certainly, you know, all the companies we worked for had publishing companies. We had very little visibility of that. Um, And also every every label had an, had an internal um, international person and I don't right. recall having much much deep you know much uh, c- contact with them because you know we were focused on the US and what was going on elsewhere was not really my concern at the time and, and you mentioned in this this is the rise of digital has been game changing for marketing starting with its sheer scale. One of the folks interviewed said, my job started out very domestic focus and I was Mm -hmm. worried about what was happening in separate US cities versus what was happening around the the globe. Now we have to view everything as a global campaign and structure it like that. Streaming alone has changed everything so dramatically. The days of having different release release days or working different singles in different countries are long gone. Ten years ago, I was not speaking to international on a daily basis in the same way. All of this is in tandem now. There's no way you could ever do something that's not on a global scale.
1: That's a so really that's good point.
0: really interesting, and that's a really valuable point. And that was yeah. uh, Sharon uh, Tamur, again, over yeah. at Island, who was saying that.
1: Yeah. When so, you and I were at Universal um, together, um, those—well, uh, actually, it was right after our kind of ECAT days when I was at Universal Music Enterprises— the first couple of years I worked there, we had some contact with international, but the last, I think, three years, it really heated up. Like I remember going to New York and having meetings with the folks from those other territories, UK, mm-hmm. France, Germany, Italy, Spain. And I think that UME really understood the, the power of uh, ex-U.S. markets. Um, and once you kind of bring those people to the table, you, you share ideas, and you mm-hmm. you gain from that experience but as you just pointed out it really wasn't on our minds a lot day to day as no. it as it is today you know uh, they, they said that the uh, the music industry's business model has shifted from the dominant revenue stream being sales to streaming um bell adds, you know you you went from the transaction business to the attention business that's completely different the pandemic accelerated an already quickly growing trend towards digital marketing becoming the dominant factor. Um, He continues, he says, it's, it's at scale. Most traditional marketing is not at scale. Think about billboards. Everybody wants a Times Square billboard, but the real power of it is in the post to socials, the grandness of it and showing it off. That's a whole different take. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things
0: I also find interesting, of course, talking about the future, and it says, you know, while all departments of a record label are affected by changes in technology, marketing teams are often the ones on the front lines of adoption looking for ways for content and campaigns to cut through the noise. Boy, no truer words have been spoken. This person said TikTok alone changed everything as far as campaigns are concerned. In a lot of cases, it didn't just affect the digital department; it affected everybody. That's Sharon again talking. Yeah. So I think it's going to roll with whatever next, whatever the next TikTok is, and not necessarily in the digital space, but whatever the next thing is that really shakes up the industry, we're just going to have to adopt to it. Yeah. And that's so true. You know, you that is just so eat- true. When these things, you know, and they come in like tsunamis, it's like all of a sudden, you know, it seems like when we were, TikTok just went from zero to a thousand miles an hour in like the blink of an eye, and suddenly it was a thing, and it was something that was just going to be a main component of a marketing plan.
1: Yeah, and we talk about that a lot. I think the part of this article that I highlighted and kind of kept because, and and I even sent this to my business partner this morning because I thought it was really profound, Uh, Dave Bell again Um, He said, my mission is to dissolve the term digital marketing at a record label. Mm, Uh, I thought that was powerful. He said, now it's, what is our fan engagement plan? What's our social plan? What's our interactive plan? We're having teams or groups treating them as different aspects of digital that collectively is a plan. We need to become more sophisticated. Artists want to go to agencies all the time. We need to be that agency that they want to come to. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So let's jump into quickly what are the, uh,
0: the at the very end of the article of the article they talk about asking some of these folks what are the keys to a great marketing campaign. Love that. Uh, Chris Atlas said that's always the million dollar question, right? But I think it's a, a great marketing cam- campaign uh, encompasses all of the attributes that can break or build a successful artist. Marketing is not just reflective of advertising digital and social. A great marketing plan understands holistically all the tent poles that need to be in that plan, mm-hmm. which is inclusive of radio, brand and sync activities, understanding the social aspects, which social platforms that can resonate for an artist. TikTok has become, again, that TikTok, become a key component in recent years of artist breakthrough and success. And then I think where you can find those brand elements that can enhance the reach of an artist and an audience for your artist and campaign that really connects with music.
1: Yeah. That was Very Chris well Atlas, said, Chris. Yes. really, really well uh, said. Uh, Dave Bell said, you know, wh- you know, answering the question, what are the keys to a great marketing campaign? He said that consistent look and feel and messaging is where it starts. And I couldn't agree with that more. You really need to hone in on that so that every stakeholder at the label, management, partners, they understand the DNA of the artist and the project that you're trying to, uh, you know, that you're trying to achieve. That also makes it crystal clear and easily digestible for the consumer. It all starts right there. Uh, Esteban Geller said something that was really
0: resonated with me, and and I know it's going to resonate with you, too, because we've talked about this. Uh, He said, time to plan. In the dynamic market we live in, it's sometimes hard to get assets on time. Things as basic as delivering the music to the DSPs, a proper video to start working a pre-marketing campaign, TikTok teaser campaign, all of these things, that needs to be scheduled. And I would also say the hardest thing is patience, you know, because listen, we all know when you're talking about artist development is that... You, sometimes you don't want massive success right out of the gate because people fall in love with maybe a campaign or a song. They're not falling in love with the artist. right? And so that is one of the things is that I re- remember is really kind of not buckling to the internal pressure of, you know, let's do this, 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 and this, and throwing money at a thing to get something faster because a lot yeah. of this stuff is, is it, it
1: takes time. It
0: It takes time. Artist development
1: takes time, and when you, I, I laughed when when you started talking about this time to plan. It reminded me of your five P's. Six Ps, that would be oh, proper six? planning. Did you it's add one or was it always six? No,
0: it's always six. Okay, It's always sorry. six.
1: Proper planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So this uh, Lally Jones said, it, it always starts with the artist. It's either things that they say, things they're obsessed with, something that they naturally do, so there's no dissonance between the messaging you're putting out there and how they get down every day on socials. You want to pull quotes from them, sentiments, And then something that really connects with the fans, making sure that you're really paying attention to the fans. And it's something that can be felt by that relevant audience, but it can also echo with audiences a couple of steps removed.
0: Yeah, all great stuff. Really, really fascinating article. Um, And it's just yeah. Again, it's it is it is where the rubber meets the road, and it is hard, hard stuff in these days because there are just so many things, and it's such a dynamic marketplace uh, with technology developing and changing at the blink of an eye. And suddenly, there's some these one gigantic component that wasn't a gigantic component two months ago, but now it is. And yeah. So you have to ref- that has to be reflected in your marketing campaign. So yeah. I tip Great my hat to everybody that's yeah. out there doing. Doing it because, man, oh, man, oh, man, it is uh, some challenging times. And with all of the different releases that are coming out from labels, those people don't get a lot of sleep at
1: night. Yeah. Good stuff. Indeed. Good series. Well, let's
0: jump over to the next one. This, this one is really interesting, Jay, from Rolling Stone. Um, inside the lavish, top-secret world of private gigs. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, I know you've worked with a lot of artists, so you're very familiar with this. And I yeah. uh, did a time working for a, a booking agency, so I was aware of this as well. But there is, um, you know, if you're a, a, an artist of, this is not for developing artists, really, but boy, there is an entire world in this article they call them the one percenters who are yeah. uh who are hiring everyone for for these gigs but um there are these private events that people with money will absolutely want these big artists to play their birthday party to play a wedding and yeah they write gigantic checks and we've known people that play in bands that go on these one-off gigs maybe to you know, for an oligarch in Russia or whomever. And this is, it's called, they, <laughs> Rolling Stone calls it the shadow economy.
1: Yeah, um, it's a big deal. It's um, a huge deal. I had one huge. of my clients last week play a, a private uh, event. It was really a a corporate event. And that's how we kind of uh, break these up. There is what you just described, you know, the private Uh, rich person, and we'll talk about some of those in here, where someone's got a lot of money, they can hire their uh, favorite band to play their birthday party. And if the check's big enough, you know, um, they do it sometimes. And artists, it may surprise you. And then there's the corporate thing, which... You know, you hear about this a little bit more, you know, when I'll make up something Coca Cola or Microsoft or somebody hires some big band to come play their convention or uh, their meetings and so on. And as you mentioned, there are some that are, you know, six, seven figures uh, paydays that they're getting for some of these. And some of these artists might surprise you.
0: Yeah. And I've, you know, I've, 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 I've I can't really say too many. I can't name some of the artists I've known that have done this, but it's it's an incredibly lucrative business if you are an artist. But by the same token, you don't necessarily want to talk about it. And as the yeah. article points out, there's a lot of um, there can be blowback. You yeah. know, it it it's uh, they mentioned Jennifer Lopez um, doing a gig back in 2014, and you know it it's these are people that have money and maybe um, they're in countries that are. Not so great with human rights or things like that, and right. it, it can it can kind of blow up in your face a little bit. And so the whole this whole world is kind of kind of secret for the, yeah. for those reasons. And yeah. Did they don't want splashed, Did you see that
1: paycheck? Do you see that Jennifer Lopez that you just mentioned? That was a 1.25 million dollars to play a birthday party. Right. She
0: she only played for 40 minutes. And uh, it's good, you know, it's, it, again, the numbers can be just eye-popping. And so yeah. it, it really has to, um, well, there's just a lot of considerations. We'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, and it's been going on for a while. Um, this article was written by David Brown for Rolling Stone. And he, he points out that, you know, for over 20 years, pop stars of all genres, you know, from Bob Dylan, the Eagles, Alicia Keys, John Legend, they've been hired to play corporate events. You know, big paycheck performances for company employees or clients, oftentimes in theaters or arenas, Um, even during a pandemic when live performances kind of slowed down, that ecosystem, it was still there. Uh, Last December, uh, a blockchain gaming uh, platform called Gala Games threw a Galaverse multi-night private party in San Francisco had 500 guests, and they hired Maroon 5, Alice Cooper, uh, DJ Steve Aoki. And, uh, you know, a bit of Snoop Dogg and, and a stripped down set by two members of Arcade Fire. So, you know, a lot of these shows, they, they don't want people taking photos at. They don't want them posting it to social media. Sometimes there are NDAs that are signed. Um, it's, it's a good way for some of these artists to make a pretty big paycheck for not a lot of work. Well, and it's kind of interesting too how some of these artists have kind of
0: embraced uh, embraced it. Um and the article just flipped behind a paywall, so I'm, I'm actually not looking at it right now. But um, I remember Mark McGrath was talked; he, he kind of featured a lot in the article. And yeah. you know, those guys had hits basically in the late 90s, and yeah. they're still getting a lot of corporate gigs. And, it, and I think he mentioned there somewhere that it's, it's almost half of his annual nut that he makes uh, performing for these kind of private corporate gigs. And That's crazy it's crazy but boy it's lucrative if you want to get out there and play and you you know and i'm sure you're going to have to vet that and your your management
1: will vet that but boy the numbers uh, don't lie it's big big dollars yeah they you know look he points out that if you fork over the right amount of money as much as seven figures you know beyonce rod stewart might play for your friends and family And, and that's really what they're talking about you know um There are other artists like John Mayer and newcomers like uh, Charlie Puth. And, you know, um, he was a surprise guest at a teenager's bat mitzvah in Boston. (laughs) You know, and you talked about, you know, Sugar Ray, if they're available, um, you know, uh, there's just so many of these artists now that are doing this because of that revenue. Pitbull, Nicki Minaj, Flo Rida, um, so many of these. And I, I find it interesting that, you know, it's not always a lot of fun uh, for these these artists that are playing it because some of the people that are there aren't really there to see you. They're there for this birthday party. And, you know, uh, Sugar Ray recently played a birthday party for a wealthy client in San Diego who rented out a club for a few dozen of his friends. And uh, McGrath said, you go out, you play for 40 people, and they're having drinks, having fun, going crazy, and, you know, like you said, he, that's like half of his revenue. And he said some of those you have to really work hard because you're not getting the response that you're used to getting in your hard ticket shows. It might hurt your ego a little bit, um, but that's the reason why you're getting paid three or four times what you normally get paid. <laughs> <laughs> it's called singing for your supper. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Have you ever been it's to still... any,
1: any uh, corporate events or private I events? Have. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Where they had a, a it, well-known band play?
0: Yep, yep. And it's it is a, you, you can kind of tell that it's it's an awkward for the band because you know you, you're so used to feeding off that energy off that live connection when you're when you're when when a lot of people are going crazy and you can tell that the, there's an adjustment and it, you, you know you and I've played in bands for a long time as well and you, you remember that you know there are times when you really have to act um and and, and you're not getting anything coming in you're just putting it out and that's hard, you know. That is tiring and it's hard. It's not. It's not as hard as being a roofer on a hot day, but it's. It is the work side of being uh, a performing musician.
1: Yeah, it's um, almost like you're a wedding band or a wedding mm-hmm. uh, singer because exactly. you're not the reason they came, uh, right? Um, you know, primarily. It's. Uh, it, it's super interesting. Ricky Martin was paid five hundred thousand dollars to take a ten-minute drive from his home in L.A. to sing at a wedding, I, I, that's just crazy to me. In 2018, Beyoncé was reportedly paid in the millions uh, to do uh, a performance at a wedding of two uh, Indian billionaires. Around that same time, one percenter financier, financier uh, based in Utah uh, constructed a full-on concert stage in his backyard to host Bad Company singer Paul Rogers. And that's the other part of this article that they talk about is a lot of these people who want these performances they don't have a professional stage uh, to put them in. It's not, especially if it's not a corporate event held like at a normal venue. Sure. If yeah. it's somebody's backyard, there there has to be enough room. There were some of these that were canceled because the they couldn't fit the stage in there with uh, room for the dancers. Or, But you have to be really careful because people's safety is... You know uh, a major concern in these things, so you have to have the right security, and you have to have the right uh, backline, and and all of that stuff. So it's it's not as simple as you might think, but it's it's getting bigger. Um, they talk about CAA alone has you know seven hundred events, both private and corporate, planned this year. Seven hundred events, and you know according to two leading talent agencies, corporate party gigs once accounted for the bulk of these exclusive shows about 75 percent but private ones are inching up 25 to maybe even 40 percent of that combined income so there's people out there with money and i mean think about it it's um well it's it's
0: it's indicative of the wealth disparity that that you know in the economy as a whole yes there 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 are people that are just fabulously wealthy and they will think nothing of dropping a couple million for to have a big artist come by. No problem. Yeah, I got that. But the, the one of the things that was also interesting was the article mentioned that kind of to your point, which is, you know, when you bring in an artist like this, it's there. There are they have staging, they have there's a lot of requirements, and they, they mentioned that sometimes just the artists and their entourage are more. People then are actually attending the event to watch the performers. Yeah. So there's a lot of things that have to be considered, but that's really interesting. And you know, in in, in I remember when I first got in the business, you would go, uh, especially when I was working on the tech side of things. You know, my, you, we go to Consumer Electronics Show CES, and Microsoft would have a big party, and they'd have Aerosmith, and I would go to the monster party. I saw. Stevie Wonder, I saw Earth, Wind & Fire. I saw all these great bands at a corporate event at a trade show. But that's, as as you mentioned, that's changing. These are the, That still exists, but that is less and less of this sort of, what they call the shadow business, so to speak. Yeah, shadowed, I don't think people are
1: embarrassed to do corporate gigs at least most of them because it's usually professionally you know the sound is professional the lights the venue typically it's 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 a gig right but you know in a lot of cases guests have to hand over their cell phones to avoid photos being leaked on social media when they're doing these private things Um, it's super confidential says agent Greg uh, Janice of UTA which also books many of its clients for private events like Pitbull, Flo, Flo Rida, who we mentioned earlier. Um, he says, we get a lot of offers from upper high-end private parties where you get to sign a non-disclosure. People just don't want it out there that they're booking these kinds of parties. So it's it's almost like, you know, in other countries, sometimes if, if you travel abroad, you'll see famous uh, actors doing commercials in yes. other markets that they'd never do in the United States because the paychecks are so huge, and they yes. typically in the past they wouldn't leak into the United States. But then of course, YouTube comes along, you know, and now, and, and we, everywhere. we mentioned this in the last uh, article on marketing. It's a global music business. Now there's, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going to do one of these, I think it would be really hard to do a private event and not have somebody snap a photo on their phone and post it to socials. I think that it'd be really difficult to keep it contained. Totally.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely again it's a it is a big part of the business that not a lot of people know about but yes. now you do yeah. <laughs> let's let's do the last one jay from billboard uh record label market share q1 of 2022 Interscope leads indies gain Disney surges into the top 10 uh it's it's interesting to look at the pie charts here and see who's doing what and yeah. Uh, yeah. there's a lot of money being made out there
1: well it's interesting to see who is. Uh, you know, who is the top dog when it comes to these these labels? And it's, you know, lately it's been kind of the usual suspects, but things are changing, especially with, you know, Disney and and the success that they they've had is just been, you know, within Kanto, it's just been amazing. Um, but I would love for you to kind of uh, walk us through the, you know, that top 10 in each one. And I'll just kind of set it up. You know, let's let's talk about just overall. There's three kind of categories here. And the first one is is overall. Interscope Geffen A and M maintained its spot atop the rankings for the first quarter of twenty twenty two. Um and they fended off a, a charge from number two Atlantic, you know, which closed the gap a bit. And uh, you know, there are clear frontrunners uh, so far this year. Eleven of the top twelve labels seeded at least some measure of overall market share points over the same period in 2021, while several companies—300 Entertainment, Alamo, and Disney, most notably—surged to big starts in 2022. So that's overall, right.
0: And then overall, when we t- when let's when we go even further out, you know, when you look at the major music groups and what their their percentage is. So Universal, of course, leads. Uh, a little over thirty-seven percent of the market. Uh, next up is Sony Music Entertainment, which uh, I found interesting. How well I'll, I'll, the the Sony Music number is almost twenty-six percent. Uh, indies are counting for a little over twenty percent, and then Warner Music Group down at about sixteen percent. I was surprised at how how much more success Sony was having over the Warner Music Group, which which uh, which is interesting because certainly in our day it was. Uh, Sony, then Columbia and Warner's were neck and neck, always at the top. That was, of course, before Universal even came on the scene. But uh, Universal, pretty darn strong there at 37% of the of the business, more than a third. Um, yeah. So uh, and of course publicly traded now. So that's that's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And Interscope, Geffen A and M, which of course is one. Uh, is is one music group within Universal Music Group, uh, just squeaked by Atlantic. Atlantic is it's nine point seven six versus nine point four nine percent between Interscope and and Atlantic. And so, um, you know, neck it's th- these these those yeah these these shift around a lot more depending on of course success and hits and all that stuff. But uh, it's. You know, these these companies, it, it, it's like you said, it's kind of the usual suspects, really.
1: And you got to hand it to them. I mean, that consistency in a business like this, uh, man, that, that, you know, people will bash labels uh, sometimes, um, but you get a label like these and they have top-notch sales and marketing people. Of course, it's just now, what is it, revenue generation and audience growth or whatever they're calling it, but they have... Um, Good relationships, good people, and they understand how to use these new platforms, not just the old platforms of radio and touring and those types of things, but some of the newer ones like TikTok, Twitch, and some of the socials and you know, even concerts on Roblox or whatever. They're, they're doing some interesting things, but they're staying in that top 10 year after year. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, a big uh,
0: section of this, of course, is about catalog, and it's interesting to see, and it's almost remarkably that the, the breakdown is very similar as to the overall, which is universal leading. Almost 40 percent of catalog sales are universal.: Incredible people. so. Sony is at a little over 26, uh, Indies uh, a little over 18, and then uh, the Warner Music Group at about 16.5%. And again, th- and this is in- this is a conversation you and I had actually before we actually hit record, which is, um, what is catalog? And it really is only, because in this case, the number one catalog label was, again, Interscope, Geffen, and A&M. But the point is to consider really is that catalog is only 18 months. Uh, So anything that's 18 months. Or older in terms of the release date is considered catalog. That's not a long time. And so when you have a hit record, that typically, oftentimes, a hit record will be out there for two or three years. So the fact that Interscope is the number one catalog label is likely more a reflection of the fact that it's also being a very successful frontline label. And so those things are just carrying over into catalog, right?
1: Right. That's exactly right. It's it's a designation for the industry. They have to have some designation, but I think you and I both agree that that should be much longer than 18 months because there are uh, artists and releases that are 18 months old or two years old that are still really more like a frontline hit thing and not certainly what people consider to be catalog.
0: Yes, and I, I'm as you and I talked before we got on, um, I think that I think there's a, a compelling argument to say that that number should not be 18 months. It should be I, I, 48 months maybe. I don't know. Um, you know yeah. you can kind of debate the, the exact number, but it seems like 18 months is, is way too quick for yeah. something to be in, in that category. Yeah.
1: I read this thing um, where um, a music executive was saying that it really shouldn't be about age. it should be about velocity. So, if something's been out six months and it's just not streaming and they're not working it, maybe that drops into catalog. If something's two years old and is selling like crazy because the artist is on tour or it won a Grammy or whatever that that should be considered frontline. So that's just one other way to consider you know designating catalog, maybe on velocity and not just on time. yeah, velocity that's a great uh
0: that's a great line to use in terms of marketing and all that stuff. <laughs> so, anyway, it's interesting to see, uh, you know, as as labels and and music groups jockey around for those positions and where they land. But uh, I'm sure we'll be doing another Q2 2022 marketing, uh, or I'm just not marketing label market, market share review yeah. in just a couple of months. So yeah. we'll see if things change and. If the folks that are on top will continue to be on top, I'm there sure. it is. We these as we said, these are names that we have seen time and time again at the top of the heap. And, and the, when we both worked at Universal, it was always in Interscope was was always leading the pack within that organization. So. And on that note, Jay, we must wrap up this particular edition of uh, the Your Morning Coffee podcast, episode number 87. I do want to thank, of course, the Music Business Association, the good folks over at uh, HypeBot and bands in town. Many thanks for for making uh, the show happen with Jay and myself. And uh, Jay and I will not surprisingly be back next week with episode number 88 double eights. So Jay, have a great weekend. Everyone listening. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And we will see you next time on the, your morning coffee podcast.
2: You've been listening to your morning coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news. You need to know.